Grace and peace be with you from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever run into one of those scenarios where, at first glance, it seems to make sense? But then the more you think about it, the more you ask about it, all of a sudden maybe it doesn't make as much sense as it, at first you thought. Now, for instance, you, you walk home with your spouse one day, and you walk into the house, and the house is a disaster. Things are tore up, things are knocked over, they're everywhere. So, of course, what do you do? You look at the kids, and you say, what happened? And the kids say, we're sorry, the cat got loose. And you go, it makes sense, right? That makes perfect sense. The cat got loose, it went wild and crazy, it knocked over stuff, and then all of a sudden the spouse leans over and says, we don't own a cat. Well, maybe now it doesn't make so much sense. The more you dig, the less sense it actually makes. Where did the cat come from? Who's the cat? And we have these scenarios in life. And, and, you know, joking aside, we have them, right? We have those things that just seems to make sense at the moment. But then as we kind of get more involved, we realize, well, maybe they don't make a whole lot of sense. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus tells this parable. And the parable makes Sense. Jesus is talking about what's about to happen to him, that these people, these, these, these chief priests, these elders, these scribes, they're going to take him and they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. It makes perfect sense. We get it. Jesus is talking and telling a parable about what is about to happen. But then again, it doesn't really make any sense at all, does it? I mean, think about it like this. Imagine you own a deli. I say deli because I used to work at one, so that's what I always think of, right? You own a deli, and the day's end, the day is over, and so you send an accountant to the deli to collect the extra profit that you got. Might be an odd practice, but not completely unheard of. Now imagine the people that were running the deli beat up the accountant. Is that okay? Are we just going to let that one slide this time? No, of course not. We're going to get police involved and we're going to get stuff involved. And those people are not going to be allowed to stay in that deli. They can't do that. We're certainly not going to send another accountant and then another accountant after that. And then we're not going to think in the back of our minds, well, they beat up every accountant we have sent. Let's send my son. Let's send him to figure it out. And who who would think... If they were running a deli, wow, if we just kill the boy, we'll be okay. We'll, we'll get it. The business will be ours. We will own the deli. No. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so we have questions. We have questions that kind of need answers. Questions about what's going on here and how does this all work and, and all that. In order to understand. Because it's possible that while this parable seems to make all the sense in the world. That we're actually missing something. And we're missing something because we don't quite get what's taking place. And so let's investigate. Let's look a little bit. How does an ancient vineyard system work? How does it work? How does it make any kind of sense whatsoever? Well, so imagine there's a master who decides he's going to make a vineyard. And he digs all the holes and he gets people to build it and plant the vineyard. He does all this work. Well, he's got to have somebody there to tend the vineyard. And so he makes a contract. 
He'll write out the contract and he'll get a piece of it or a, a piece of paper that has the contract signed. And they will also get a piece of the contract, a piece of paper signed. And the contract kind of lays out like this. This is a pretty standard ancient world contract. And yes, I'm going to throw some numbers at you. I'm sorry. We'll just have to get over it. So the way it works is like this. Grapes don't produce a whole lot on the first year. In fact, they don't produce a whole lot on the first few years. So years one, two, and three, the master of the vineyard, the one who put all the money in it, who bought the land, who who dug all the holes, who planted all the seed, who got it all ready to go, he only gets 10%. 10% of either the fruit produced or the profit, depending on how the contract was written. 10%. But realize that the tenants also needed something to live off of. So what they would do is they would plant vegetables, you know, basically a garden all around the vines. Now, some of the vines might produce a few grapes here and there. And if the vineyard is big enough, it might even account for 10% of the total amount of profits. So basically, the owner of the vineyard gets the grapes. The tenants get all the vegetation and everything else that they grow which they can either eat on to live or they can sell. Makes sense so far. Now, each year, those grapes are going to produce a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. And so those three, first three years are really good years for the tenants because they can actually overproduce and they can make a profit without giving a whole lot to the owner. But then in year four, in year four, that's when the grapevines should be producing the, uh, a pretty good amount of grapes And the owner of the vineyard gets a full 50%. 50%. Half of it goes to him. And from that point on, that's usually how it works. But remember, this is before the days of telephones. It's before the days of fax machines. It's before the days of email and internet. What happens if this owner goes off and dies on them? Are they supposed to just wait around for him? How are they going to deal with that? Well, it's simple. They wait for three years. If after three years, according to the ancient contract, he has collected no fruit, no profit, nothing, the tenants take over ownership of the vineyard. So you see how the parable lays out. They send a servant. You'll notice the servant does not go away with any fruit does not go away with any profit. He sends another. He sends another. But you see, there's an exception clause in this. An exception clause that allows an extension of one whole year. And that's if you're out of the country. Remember, before phones, it took a while to find you, which means... By the time the servant was sent away without the fruit, he had to find the master, and the master had to figure it out, and then the master had to come back to deal with the wicked tenants, which means you got an extension if you were out of the country. You got a whole year extension, a fourth year. But in that fourth year, you better show up with the contract to prove that you, in fact, are the owner of the vineyard. But the sun comes. The sun shows up. The assumption is that the sun wouldn't be there if he didn't have the contract, which means that if they take the sun, if they find the contract, they tear up the contract, 
and then kill the son so that he can't run off and tell his dad, tell the owner, they might be able to get away with this free and clean. Take over the vineyard, and before the owner can even think of anything to do, they already own it, legally and acceptably. Now, admittedly, they've done murder, but according to the statutes, at least of the vineyard, they own the vineyard, 100% of the profit. This is the way the ancient contracts worked. And you can see this play out in the parable. One servant is sent, another one is sent, another one is sent. And finally, the son arrives and they kill the son. Presumably, look for the contract. I don't, the text never tells us whether it's there or not. It doesn't get into that. But all of a sudden, the son is dead. Do you see what Jesus is saying? How many times has our Heavenly Father sent one prophet after another prophet after another prophet to speak, not just, not just to Jerusalem, not just to the temple, but the whole people of Israel? That's the vineyard. The vineyard is the people of Israel. And God has spoken to them over and over and over again. But each time the prophet is chased away or thrown away. Isaiah was cut in half. Elijah was chased away. They face constant threats for speaking the very word of the Lord. And finally, here is Jesus, the Son, the one who speaks with authority, the one who is the Messiah. And almost like it's an attempt to own it. Almost like it's an attempt to say, God's word doesn't rule here. We rule here. We decide who God is and who God isn't. We decide what he's for and against. They try to kill the son. But notice the last word. The stone the builders rejected. The very one that they reject is the very cornerstone of the true church. Is the very cornerstone of the true vineyard. Is the very cornerstone of God's house. It's a powerful message for them to hear. It's a very powerful message. It's actually one of the reasons I chose the title today, right? Amen. The word literally means truly, certainly. It's why we end our prayers with it. We say, this is what we pray. Truly and certainly, it is your will, O Lord. And so we say, amen, truly, certainly. But you know, it's also a great message for us to hear right now, today. You see, the world out there, it really tries to, to, to tempt the church to give up who it is. We expect the world to act like the world. We expect sinful world to act like the sinful world. So we're not surprised when sin happens in the sinful world and when it's accepted and when it's endorsed and publicized and so on. But the temptation is always on the other end. The temptation is that we as a church need to somehow endorse it. We as a church need to somehow uphold it. It's why some of these big debates come around with all these big words. It's not good enough if the world outside us accepts things like homosexuality or gender dysphoria, it's the fact that they want the church to do it as well. But the church stands on the very foundation that we were given, the very foundation of God's word, which means we call sin, sin. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse to be mean to anybody. As a church, as Christians, we are nice. 
We are kind. We are gentle and respectful. But we still call sin what it is. And so when we see the world outside going nuts over this sin or that sin, we stand instead on the very foundation of God's Word. For it's in that, it's in Christ that we have forgiveness of sins. This is God's vineyard. You are God's vineyard. You are a child of God through Christ Jesus. Which means you are forgiven through Christ Jesus. You have been redeemed through Christ Jesus. You have been reconciled with the Father. Not through me, not through a building, not through anything else other than our very cornerstone. Our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Him. Amen. And now may the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>